What's up, everybody? This is Grant, that cause artist. Today we are chatting with Frank Shankwitz. Um, he has a really, really powerful story, inspirational and emotional at the same time. Um, it's it's the story of how he created and co-founded the Make a Wish Foundation, um, which is one of the most recognizable nonprofits in the entire world. And the story of of how that organization was created is a bit emotional. It might choke you up a little bit, <laughs> so be prepared for that. But it's it's a really amazing look at, at a man's life, a person's life that didn't come from much and really had people in his life that believed in him and guided him a little bit. And, you know, he had the strength in himself to to really follow what he wanted to do. And a lot of his life has been serving from the Air Force to um, being a police officer, highway patrolman, detective. Um, and then obviously volunteering much of his life to nonprofit organizations. It's, uh, I do get a little choked up in this one. I tried to edit it a little bit, but Mr. Frank is, is an unbelievable uh, person and he's uh, genuine to his core. And I hope everybody really, really enjoys this. And, and one of the takeaways that I had from it was that uh, a quote that stuck out to me was, you know, you don't need money to make a difference. We all have time. That is the great equalizer. And he really prefaces that, um, that time is our most valuable asset. It's our most most valuable asset to give away. And that that's what he's sort of done his entire life. And, you know, the impact that he has, has brought to the world has been amazing. And we actually talk about the movie they made about him, about his life. It's called Wish Man. So... Anytime you get a movie made about you, that's that's pretty impressive and, and pretty incredible. I believe it comes out today, so you can stream it. Uh, it was in theaters already, and now it comes out um, streaming today on all the platforms where you would rent or, or buy a movie um, at your house. So it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty you know it's just some powerful stuff, and everybody I think knows a person in their life that's dealt with illness and uh has passed away and and it's just for some reason when you when that's when you're dealing with children and illness it, it becomes much more of a uh a tough thing to deal with but i think it's amazing what we can do as human beings when faced with adversity like that and uh frank and, and some of the other people he talks about i mean that it's just unbelievable what what human beings can do when we really come together so hope you guys enjoy it have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye. I wanted to kind of start with your journey in joining the Air Force and and what that was like and what that thought process was like for you and, and that decision, because that's obviously a, a big decision in people's lives, usually at an early age, to to make that big of a decision. So what was that journey like from, um, you know, maybe, you know, childhood to your teenage years to where you you figured, I really want to join the Air Force. Well, during high school, and uh, poor family. I mean, I worked all through high school to help support my mother mm -hmm. um, and, and couldn't afford college. Uh, now, this is in uh, 1961, back when there were <laughs> right. student loans and everything else, before there were student loans. Right. But uh, I figured if I joined the Air Force, I could take advantage of some classes there and also completing the uh, 
my four-year commitment that I could uh, use the GI Bill to go to college. And uh, pre-tested for the Air Force because uh, I was very interested in air traffic control. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had studied that. I just was fascinated with it. Uh, took the basic test for that, passed it, uh, was promised by the recruiter, a promise, right, uh, <laughs> that I would go to tech school after basic. And uh, basic training, I had so much fun in basic training, Grant, because I was just coming off all sorts of sports. And yeah. all of that, all of that to me was just so easy. All the obstacle courses, everything else. In fact, I ended up being the squad leader and so on. Where but, was that uh, at? Well, that was in Lackland Air Force Base where I first started. Okay. For okay. basic training in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, one day, they just upon before graduation, they came in and they said, this barracks of 50 guys is now Air Police. And that's what the barracks I was in. The other barracks is now cooks. The other barracks is now medics upon graduation. And we had guys that were in all sorts of Russian language school, big high-tech things, but that's what they call the needs of the service. Mm-hmm. But it turned out to be, years later, a, a great leadway into my police career. Mm-hmm. But yep. I was assigned, uh, I was assigned uh, first in New Mexico, security on the uh, uh, B-2 bombers, and this was the days of the Strategic Air Command, when everything was loaded. We had bombers in the air 24 hours a day. Um, and then assigned up to Montana, where uh, it was the uh, Atlas and Minuteman missile site. And it was there that I got uh, in a situation in a storm where myself and my partner were stranded on a missile site for several days. They couldn't get to us. We had no shelter. Uh, ended up with a severe frostbite, hypothermia. In fact, my partner lost several uh, toes and, and fingers, and uh, his career was over. Where, where was that at? That was in um, Great Falls, Montana. Okay. But a strange turn of events, um, base commander came in one day and apologized because they had tried rescue missions. They couldn't mm-hmm. get anything in the air. They couldn't even get the snow caps to us. And he said, uh, we, we're sorry for what happened, and we noticed you have a transfer request in, but you can go anywhere in the world you want to go, including back home to Arizona. And I was really fascinated with um, European history, World War II history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I said, I'd like to be stationed in England. And two weeks later, I was on my way. Wow. So how, how old were you at that time? That was 19 years old. 19. Wow. Wow. And it wasn't that long after World War II right. uh, that I was over there. So I, I was so fortunate, again, to sign air police duties. We had our B-47 bombers over there that, again, were in the air 24 hours a day. And I was on a security on those. And then assigned, promoted, assigned to base police, as I call it, doing actual police duties, mm-hmm. investigating accidents, investigating crimes, etc. Uh, but I was also grant uh, selected for the base honor guard, which is is there was only three of us selected out of all the guys in our, our squadron, and we did certain events. But I really studied Winston Churchill, so Winston Churchill. Mm-hmm. during school. I just admired the man, the personality, and the character. And the biggest thrill of my career while in England was I was selected. When he died, I was selected to be on the final leg of his honor guard wow. on his funeral procession. So wow. that, that to me was quite the honor. I mean, you know, a young kid from the mountains sure. in Arizona. Right. And yeah. Sudden, yeah. 
<laughs> but, <laughs> you had a dream come true very early on. You know, that's yeah, uh, yeah. That's I, think I, used amazing. To go, I used to take leave and go into London and just go by 10 Downing Street and uh, mm-hmm. imagine what it was like during the war and him in residence and that. Yeah, so it was a big thrill. But the Air Force, I would say the Air Force helped uh, transform the boy to the man. Sure. And, and I had a lot of training in uh, work ethic and character and integrity, but that, that was the final thing. And uh, this is Vietnam era, and our bombers uh, were going to stay in England, and I, I never went in-country to Vietnam. I stayed mm-hmm. in England. Now. But uh, following the service, Motorola uh, was looking for people, Motorola in Phoenix, Arizona, was looking for people with top secret clearances, which we had because of the duties we were doing. Right. And the reason for that grant was this was the time of the Atlas Missile Program. The uh, contractors, government contractors, to work on certain aspects of this, you had to have a top secret clearance. And (laughs) this is the days, now this is the mid-60s, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all the hippies. Sure, sure. <laughs> and, and and even the engineers with degrees getting out of college could not get hired because they couldn't pass the drug test. Wow. So that's why Motorola was looking for us, and they were going to, in fact, train us. And uh, they did. I hired on an entry-level position. Um, they started sending me to their courses. I used the GI Bill to go to college and ended up um, in statistical engineering, of all things. Wow, wow past algebra when I first started high school. <laughs> but Motorola just treated me so good. And what we're doing is statistical engineering, and this is before the days of computers, even handheld, is we would determine a failure rate, a probability of a failure rate on a certain component of that missile. Wow. And then, and then report that that would go to the government. Um, but Motorola just treated me so good. I mean, advancement, uh, more money than I ever made in my life. Mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. a nice car, nice new home, everything else. But it was very, it was a great job, but I didn't like living in the city. I'm, I'm not a city boy. Sure, And sure. Uh, several of my friends from high school had joined the Arizona Highway Patrol. And they kept encouraging me, why don't you apply? And I said, guys, I make it one week, what you make it a month. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm That's just a tough transition. Take... That's a tough yeah. transition. <laughs> and I'm not just going to, I'm not going to take that uh, wage cut. But after a while, again, the seven years, Motorola tree to be super good. I just started thinking I'm bored. Mm-hmm, right. I'm bored with this. And I, I like the adventures. I like the outdoors. I like small towns. And on a whim, I put in an application for the Iowa Patrol. Uh, there were 1,000 applications. And again, because of the, uh, the drug culture at the time, there were only 50 selected. That other 950, the majority couldn't pass the drug test. Right, right. Uh, I was off the position. I accepted. I went to the academy. Well, probably the great career choice I ever did because 42 years later, I finally retired. <laughs> wait, and, wait, and how old How old were you? I was 29 at the time. I was one of the real senior guys going into the academy. Oh. The, average, the average age was 22. But right. I also had I had the the background in engineering and mathematics and uh, I guess a little more maturity, a little more life experience, and uh, it was just a great career. Now during my youth years, little town of Seligman, Arizona, 
on old Route 66, population 500, very <laughs> poor, just my mother and I. And so many people in town helped us. So my mentor at that time, named Juan Delgadillo, said, Frank, so many people help you, and when you can, give back. Right. I said, Juan, what do you mean give back? We don't have a thing. And he said, you don't have to have money to give back. You can give back your time. Right. Yeah. And he gave an example. Look at the... Look at the widow Sanchez. Look at her yard. It's full of weeds. Look at the front porch. Mm. It, it needs sanding. It's painted. And you're big enough to do that because she's always helping you guys out by bringing you food. Right. And I remembered that. So when I graduated the cabin, I was stationed down in Yuma, Arizona as a car officer, which is right on the California-Mexico border. And I was going to take college classes down there. It's continuing. Sure. And the football coach came up to me one day and introduced himself, and he said, I know your high school football coach back from your high school days. And he said, I'd like you to get involved in a program. Have you ever heard of Special Olympics? Huh. And, I said, and I said, Coach, I haven't. I don't know what that is. He explained the program to me and asked if I would be one of the coaches for the kids in my off-duty time. And I said, I'd love to try that. Well, I had more fun working with these kids. I'll teach them the the football throw, the baseball throw uh, for their competition. And I started thinking all of a sudden, Juan, I think I'm starting to give back. This is my first time in my life. Right. I'm, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, and I'm starting to give back. In uh, 1974, this is 1972 when I joined the Highway Patrol. In 1974, commanders out of Phoenix came down and said, we are starting a motorcycle program. Uh, it's going to be 10 men on a motorcycle unit, a 10-man tactical squad that's going to work the whole state of Arizona. You guys are going to be in two weeks in one town, two weeks in another town, sometimes all 10 men together, but usually split in two-man teams. And he said, we'd like you to apply for motorcycle school to see if you can get on that team. And I thought, now that sounds like fun. <laughs> uh, did apply, went through motor school, and... Uh, there was 20 that uh, went through that school to start with, and that particular school, only two of us passed. It was very, very strenuous, very hard school to go through. Uh, started on that team, and again, that was a great career choice. So we were working all over the state, but the problem was I had to move back to Phoenix, where we were based out of, but we weren't there. That was just a place to change right. clothes, by the way. We, in the... Uh, Late 70s, about 77, the TV show Chips became very popular. Yep. And are, are you familiar with Chips? I'm familiar. Yeah, I've seen I've seen clips and I've seen you know stuff yeah. on on YouTube and things like that. Yeah, and it was about the adventures of two California Highway Patrol motorcycles, mm -hmm. Punch and John. Yep. And the, the kids, the demographics for that were the kids from seven to fourteen. They just loved it. Uh, the other demographic, fourteen to about fifty. For the ladies that love punch, Eric <laughs> <Estrada>. <laughs> that's right. That was his name, Eric Estrada. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I yeah. can see his face. Yeah, and and uh, Larry Wilcox was John, and um, we started going to little towns, and all of a sudden, two man teams, and all of a sudden, the kids are yelling at us, "Hey, punch! Hey, John! Hey, chips!" Because <laughs> we had we had trained initially with California Highway Patrol. And our equipment was identical to them. Our uniforms, the only difference was our mm -hmm. Arizona. Right. But I started thinking, I asked my commanders, I said, well, if we have a little slow time, can we go to some of the grade schools 
and talk about bicycle safety in these little towns. And they said, that'd be a great idea, great public relations. Well, it was. The kids cared less about bicycle safety. They just wanted to get all over the motorcycle. Of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But again, it was great PR. And then in 1978, we had the, a little town called Park, Arizona, right on the Colorado River, uh, California border. Little town of 2,000 grew to 85,000 because of spring break. Wow. All the colleges out of California, Nevada, Arizona would just flood that. And again, this is still the hippie generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much drugs, so much drunk, so many fatal accidents. Sure, they, would send, sure. they would send our whole 10-man unit along with the, about 15 car officers from all over the state to patrol that area. And I was involved in a high-speed chase with a drunk driver, 80 miles an hour in a 25-mile zone, mm-hmm. uh, twists and curves right by the river banks. When another drunk driver pulled directly in front of me, and I hit him broadside at 80. And uh, I was told the crash was spectacular. Yeah, I was pronounced dead at the scene. And you and I are obviously talking. Uh, sure. my, partner, my partner tried to revive me. He couldn't do it. They called in the code 963A, officer killed in the line of duty. Uh, and God, I always believe, well, every police officer I ever worked with, including myself, we believe in a higher being. Okay. Um, you go to work every day, you say a little prayer, please allow me to come home. You get home at night, you say, thank you for allowing me to get home. Um, and I, I believe in guardian angels, but not on the forms of the wings and white gowns flying sure. around. <laughs> right. But a guardian angel in the form of a human. Right. And God sent down that day a guardian angel in the form of an off-duty emergency room nurse from California. Wow. She stopped. She identified herself. She said, I want to try and revive him. My partner said he's dead. We have to call. So was she just driving by or was, did she, did somebody call there, her? There was, she... there was a little, there was a little, this is a real remote area. There's a little, like a convenience store with an ice uh-huh, cream okay. shop attached right. that she was in and heard the crash and ran out of that. Um, and she performed CPR on me for four minutes and obviously brought me back to life. And you and I are talking. Wow. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And it, 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 I'm so glad that uh, when I woke up, it was her that I woke up to, this beautiful blonde with a lip lock <laughs> on me, because uh, my partner was a big, ugly guy, mustache full of bugs, and that would have been very traumatic. <laughs> you would have been, yeah, you would have been scarred for life. For, yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> but it, it, took, it took several months to recover from that accident. I had traumatic brain injury, skull fracture. Uh, broken bones, a lot of missing skin, shattered elbow. Mm. And uh, towards the end there, after physical therapy and going to counseling, uh, the counselor one day said, making sure I can okay to go back to work. Um, he said, God spared you for a reason. And now it's up to you to find that reason. And it was this was in April of 1978. Exactly two years later, April of 1980, I was on patrol way up in northern Arizona, up in the mountains, just before the days of cell phones. Sure. The dispatcher calls me on the radio and says, you need to check out at a pay phone if anybody knows what those are anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, that was 40 miles away to the closest one. I call in and she said, we have just been informed that there's a seven-year-old boy named Chris. Chris has terminal leukemia. Chris only has a week or two to live. Chris's heroes are Ponch and John from the television show Chips. <laughs> and 
he always tells his mother, when I grow up, I'm going to be a motorcycle officer, just like Ponch and John. <laughs> and the family and a friend, uh, the, the, uh, there's a customs agent named Tom Austin that befriended the family. And he called friends at the Highway Patrol, asked, is there anything you can do for this little boy? Can he meet one of the motor officers and just hang out for the day, have him come up to the hospital, hang out with Chris? And our, our commanders did, definitely, definitely. And what they did was they got permission. This little boy's on IV. Right, right. But they got permission from the doctor and his mother that, that she's a single mother, divorced mother. If uh, Chris was able, strong enough, that they would pick him up in our state police uh-huh. helicopter and fly him to our headquarters building in Phoenix, Arizona. Wow. And the doctor said, yeah, well, let's do this. Mother said, let's do this. And they timed it so, because I've got a long drive. I've got over a 100-mile drive to get back down to Phoenix, where I'm approaching the landing zone. The helicopter is there, and he can see the motorcycle pulling in. Well, and I, I've never met this little boy, Grant. I had no idea what to <laughs> <Sure>. expect. The <laughs> helicopter's coming in. I can see his face pressed against the glass. <laughs> Just this big grin. <clears throat> helicopter lands. And, and I expected our paramedics to help him out. He had just come off IVs. Right. The door opens up, little red pair of sneakers jumps out of the helicopter, runs over the motorcycle. Hi, I'm Chris. Can I get out of your motorcycle? <laughs> well, of course you can, Chris. <laughs> he knew what he wanted, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, this little boy had watched ships so much. Remember, I said our equipment was identical. And he said, yeah. okay, these are the red lights. Then I turn them on. These are the four-way flashes. This is the siren. This is your horn. What's in your saddlebag? Do you have the same as Pontius has in his? He is grinning and laughing and having the greenest time. And I'm looking at his mother, and she's crying. And then it dawned, I couldn't figure out why then it dawned on me. She has her seven-year-old back. He's out of a hospital bed. He's right. off of IDs. Right. He's forgetting. Yeah, it's probably the first joy he's, it's probably the first joy yeah. he's had, you know, in a, in a long yeah, and time. He knew, and he knew he was dying. He knew that. I can't even imagine that at seven right. years old to know that. Right. <clears throat> but this went on that day. Well, I went back up a little bit. Um, we were allowed to take the kids ride on our motorcycles in the parking lot back in those mm-hmm. days. Yeah. And I asked Chris, I said, come on, let's go for a ride in the parking lot. And he got very nervous, and he said, no. And I said, well, you just rode the helicopter. And he kind of gives me this look, and he says, helicopters have doors. <laughs> <laughs> we learned we learned doors were very important. Very important, Yes. But just then, one of the squad cars pulled up, and I said, well, how would you like to jump on a sergeant's lap and help steer that patrol car around? Uh, because it does have doors. And he jumped on the sergeant's lap. He's staring. He's got the red lights and sirens. They threw him bubble gum. And he blew this big, giant bubble as he's driving this. And I looked at his mother, and I said, well, there's our bubble gum trooper. <laughs> and she wrote a book. It may be still on Amazon. I'm not sure. Titled The Little Bubble Gum Trooper. The little bubblegum trooper. But Chris went on that did become the first and only honorary high patrolman in the history of the high patrol up to just a year ago, so almost 38 years, uh, complete with his own smoky hat that the troopers wear, his own badge, which is still assigned to him today, a certificate making him an official honorary police officer. And his doctor, like I said, was with him, couldn't understand. Towards the end of the day, he said, let him go home to his comfort zone. His vitals are so good. We don't understand to let him go home, which he did. Mm-hmm. 
Now, yeah. we felt good about what we did. The guys are talking, everybody that helped put that together. And one of the officers said, you know, we got a patrolman, but it needs a uniform. And in those days, they were custom made. Mm-hmm. Go to the uniform shop just about closing time. We explained to the ladies, we got this little seven-year-old about this wide, this high. We make a uniform for Chris. Two ladies spent all night making that uniform for him. Amazing, amazing. Got permission from the commanders to the next morning to leave several motorcycles, uh, squad cars out to Chris's neighborhood, red lights and sirens. You can imagine the neighbors, right? What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, <neighbors>. yeah. <laughs> and uh, Chris hears that. He comes out just grinning. We hand him his uniform. The little boy's a quick change artist. He runs in the house and he comes out just beaming, just strutting. He's got a smoky hat. But he comes over to me, and he has to get on a motorcycle, of course. And then he starts rubbing the wings that motorcycle officers wear on their uniforms. And he's rubbing the wings, and it's the first time I heard this word. He said, I wish I could be a motorcycle officer. And I said, well, Chris, let me tell you what the training. And I just told him what kind of training we did and that. And I said, it's a shame you don't have a motorcycle. We'd put up traffic cones in the driveway and train you right now. This little kid's a step ahead. He runs in the house, comes riding out on a little battery-operated motorcycle <laughs> that his mother got for him in place of a wheelchair. Now, he's got on the motorcycle helmet we gave him. I don't know where he got the aviator glasses like motorcycle officers wear. Man, he was prepared for this. He was prepared, but he also, and I, I just laughed at this one. On the ranch, we call them the high mucking boots, the high rubber top boots. And his mother had got a pair for him where he stuck his pants really good and he looked like the motorcycle boots that motorcycle officers wear. And he is serious. I'm ready for my test. He goes through the cones. He comes back. Did I pass? Yes, you did. <laughs> when do I get my wings? Well, those were custom made also. They, they weren't just off the shelf. Sure. And sure. I, said, I said, I promise you I'll get your wings. And Chris, doctor came over and again, said, let him stay home again today. I don't understand. Well, two days later, I pick up the wings. I get a call from dispatcher call in again. She informs me, Chris is in a coma in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Probably not going to survive today. And you have, you're have you authorized to go to his hospital. Um, I walk into the hospital room, and his uniform is hanging right by his bed. Just as I pinned on those wings, it's like a movie scene. Well, it ended up being a movie scene. Right, right. <laughs> Chris comes out of the coma. He looks at me. He just starts smiling. Am I a motorcycle officer now? Yes, you are, Chris. He asks for his uniform. He's rubbing the wings. He's showing it to his mother. A, a big thank you, a very weak thank you. And unfortunately, okay. a couple hours later, he passed away. <sighs> and I would like to think maybe those wings helped carry him to heaven. Oh, man. Now, we learned, uh, our commanders called me in a couple of days later and said, we have learned that Chris is going to be buried in a little town called Kiwani, Illinois. Okay. And as far as we are concerned, we have lost a fellow officer. And we would like you and your motor partner to go back to Illinois and give him a full police funeral. Wow. And he said, the problem is we can authorize a mission, but we can't pay for it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have to use vacation time. We're going to have to arrange your own transportation. He said, well, don't worry, because I already kicked in money. And this is the director of the Department of Public Safety. 
And, and at those days, I remember exactly the airfares at the last home were seven hundred and sixty-seven dollars each round trip. Wow! And because of that last-minute type thing. Sure. So oh yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's still that's still true these days. Yeah. 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 Exactly. exactly. Sure. I see. Except, but we've already passed the hat, and uh, within the day, they had more than enough money to cover our expenses. Uh, we go back to Illinois, and uh, as we're driving, it's about 120 miles, 50 miles from Chicago to the little town of Kewanee. When we get there, the TV it picked us up. Again, this is before internet or anything. Sure. The local press and TV stations that picked us up and put it out to Illinois State Police notified them along with the city and county police. And when we got to the little town of Kewanee, we were met by Illinois State Police, city police, county police that all wanted to help bury this little boy. And Chris was buried in uniform. Wow. Yeah, great marker reads, Chris Gracious, Arizona Trooper. Come on. Yeah. Oh, that's coming home. Coming home from Chicago, flying home, I just started thinking, here's a little boy who had a wish, and we made it happen. Why can't we do that for other children? Mm -hmm. And that's when the idea of the Make-A-Wish Foundation was born. And then... Soon at was it soon after that that you you were said let's let's find another kid you know or was it there were some times that passed and and you were just like oh yeah it, it took it took several months it took almost yeah. six months to get the five hundred one c three and uh, I was the first president and the CEO but I was also still working full time right um, but uh, our first official wish wasn't until March of nineteen eighty one. By then we had we had all of our paperwork, our 501 C3 in order, and our coordinator, who happened to be our hospital coordinator, who happened to be Chris's mother, Linda. I mean, what a job she had to right. go to the hospitals to talk to these children. And in those days, Grant, it was terminal children. None of mm. these children were surviving. Right, right. Was it all was it all cancer related? Yes, it was all cancer, okay. predominantly leukemia. Yeah, where, yeah. Where it was, Ironically, ironically enough, my uh, my mom had leukemia when she was uh, 16 years old. So I'm very familiar with uh, with sort of what that, you know, what that looks like at at a young age. I mean, obviously, I wasn't I wasn't there when she went through it, but she had, you know, she had told me what it was, you know, what it was like and the toll she took on her. And, you know, I couldn't imagine being, you know. 10 years younger than that. Right. And dealing with it, you know, at least when she's in high school, she's, you know, she's mature and she could, you know, you got, you have a little bit more of, of life that you lived, you know, but, right. but for a seven or eight year old to deal with it, it's, oh well, man, it's, yeah, it's and, tough. And like I said, there was no, there was no cures. There was, the chemo wasn't right. working, anything like that. Yeah. Where yeah. Today, right. Yeah. Right. Where today about 70% of the children, not only with the uh, leukemia, but cancers are surviving. I yeah. like to say, I like to say through the grace of God and modern medicine, for sure. And that's why we changed the mission a long time ago to children with life-threatening illnesses, not right. terminal. Gotcha. But gotcha. Um, uh, again, we were told of a, a seven-year-old boy named Frank Bopsy Salazar. Bopsy was his middle name. Uh, seven years old, again, terminal leukemia, and um, he lived in a little town called Guadalupe, Arizona. Very poor town. Uh, the okay. home still had dirt floors, no inside plumbing, still outhouses. Wow. And I was his wish granter, as we call it. 
And the wish winner, which is now a two-man, a two-person team, goes to interview the child. To find so based on a forensic almost interview that we started with, but to find out what the child's wish is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do they want to? Do they want to have? Do they want to go? Do they want to meet? Do they want to see? Is the right. four categories. And um, I borrowed a patrol car and went out there. And the mother was again a single mom, embarrassed for me to come inside the house. I don't know why it was better than what I lived in as a kid, but uh, <laughs> so I got. Bopsy uh, in patrol car, and he's very shy, seven years sure. old and very shy, uh, yaki Indian. And um, I just told him, you know, if you had a wish, what you, would you want to go or see? And he looks at me, and the first thing he says was, I want to be a fireman. <laughs> and I said, you're sitting in a highway patrol car, and you want to be a fireman? <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, I thought to myself, now that's easy, because my girlfriend at the time, her brother was a Phoenix fireman. I know we can arrange that. Sure. Then he says, no, I want to ride the hot air balloon. And I thought, well, that's easy, too, because I've got friends where I live in Prescott that have the hot air balloon. And he said, no, I want to go to Disneyland. And I said, oops, we really hadn't <laughs> thought about a travel wish. <laughs> right, you know, right. Yeah, especially when we had about $2,000 in our bank account was all. But I said, okay, let, let me go see what we can do. And went back to the board and told them, and the child only gets one wish. Uh, and that charter we wrote 38, over 38 years ago still stands. And I said, let's break, let's break the bylaws and charter right now. Let's grant all three wishes. We're going to so <laughs> get so much press out of this. It's going to be unbelievable. It's going to put us, it's going to put us on the map as a nonprofit. Right. Well, we did. And it was just unbelievable. The press coverage we got, especially Disney, they had never oh, heard yeah. of us. Sure. They had sure. never heard of us. They were so good to us. And uh, and now, like I say, all these years, Disney being one of the biggest. Yeah. Sponsors. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine. Disneyland, Disney World, Disney Cruises. I mean, just unbelievable. Unbelievable. So it was because of that, because of Bopsy and the growth. And then uh, in 1983, we went national, starting chapters throughout the United States and also international. And now, all these years later, we're at uh, 50 international chapters on five continents. We have 62 chapters in the United States, and we're approaching a half a million wishes, all because of one little boy who wanted to be a motorcycle officer. <laughs> but then also, the people around that little boy that that made it happen, right? Like it, it wasn't it wasn't just you. It wasn't just his mom, it was a whole oh, city, essentially, you know, I mean, it was the women who did his, his uniform, oh, yeah. people who oh, got yeah. the wings made. I mean, everybody pitched in to, to really create, you know, the foundation, mm-hmm. you know, nobody knew they were doing that at the time. Right. But they were, they were laying yeah, the bricks and in the groundwork. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I saw. Cause I kept remembering, you know, he's got a wish and that's what I saw people responding. Right. And we just that they're going to do the same for other children which obviously they had for years and years. But like you said, it took a team. There was one, not one individual. The hardest thing, Grant, was finding Arizona to file, start a 501c3 to file with IRS. You had to have uh, five board members. Okay. And that, that was the hardest thing to do was myself, my partner, and Chris's mother, Linda. But to find those other two people was hard because everybody I asked, they said, this won't work. We've never heard anything like this. It's a dumb idea. Right. right. 
And um, I was taught as a young boy to always turn those negatives into positives. And that's so who, who, were the ne- who were the next two then? Who'd you finally get? Um, one of our, our captains, uh, well, he was a sergeant at the time for the Highway Patrol. His wife, Kathy McMorris, uh, joined us. And then also um, Alan Schmidt um, was one of our PR sergeants. Nice. Um, public relations for the Highway Patrol. I really wanted him because we'd be at the press. Sure, of course. When you when you guys were going through this expansion, were you still working? Were you still a patrolman? Yeah, and and the first year after the first year, I had to make a career choice. Um, I couldn't do both anymore. I couldn't yeah. run the foundation, and we also the board started saying we we need to hire the professionals because nobody ever took a salary. Mm-hmm. with our original group. Right. And even after 30 years of more that I was involved with them, I never took a salary, not, not, not even expenses. But we had to hire somebody in, in the nonprofit world, and that was a great decision of the board because obviously we went through, but look at the growth that those different CEOs over the years uh, have made the foundation what it is today. Yeah, it's uh, I think I see it a lot now with, I mean, I think you guys kind of pioneered a, a bunch of different things, but you see more and more nonprofits really focusing on getting professional people, whether it's on the board or um, in executive positions to try to really, you know, run a nonprofit like a business, you know, in the fact that things are structured, right? There's an efficiency exactly. to it. Yeah. Exactly. It's not a, it's not a money thing. It's just, you know, nonprofits sometimes, like you said, they, they're, they have other things they're doing in their lives, right? I mean, they, they this is sort of a, a volunteer thing for them. And if you get somebody in there that's dedicated professionally and understands how things happen and how things can move forward and, and scale, I mean, I mean, look what's happened. I mean, you guys are, are yeah. one example, and it, it's, well, you, you, uh, it, it's happened over working, and over. Yeah, you get set up a good working staff, but your biggest thing, too, is your board. And I always encourage people. I, I do a lot of uh, consulting on starting nonprofits. Sure. And you have to get a board member. I would say get board members that have a great big fat Rolodex because because they have the contacts. Yeah, no, I think I think the yeah. five you got like yeah. you know for like basketball, your starting five was was really good. You know, you were kind of strategic on you know let's get let's get a PR guy on the board because that's important. You know, you can do as many great things and, and try to keep doing them, but if you can't sustain the impact and the great things you want to do, then, you know, you would never get this far. You guys would never have, you know, um, half a million wishes granted, you know, I mean, you wouldn't have never got to that point without, without some of those early decisions early on that really, uh, that were really the right decisions. <laughs> you know I mean? That's, yeah. you know, sometimes that could go the wrong direction, right? And you make the, make the wrong decision. And maybe we're not here today talking about all the kids that have been affected. You know, it's, it's a really incredible thing. And then also on the other side of it, people say, oh, wow, look at what you created as far as granting wishes. But look what we created with employment mm. nationwide. The average make wish chapter has a president, CEO, and then a staff of about the average of 15 people. Wow. Yeah, now, and that's in 62. 60 countries, right? I mean, that's across the well, world. Well, no, in, in the United States, 62 chapters. But then there's also chapters around the world, correct? Around the world, but the majority of the chapters around the world, and I can't explain this, it's all on a volunteer basis. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. They're, they're, they're CEOs and that, they're board directors. It's all volunteer. They don't take a salary. Yeah, which, which isn't that a great thing? Wouldn't that be something that you could do it worldwide like that? It's a, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible, it's an incredible thing. I mean, it's yeah, look, look yeah. how much more money would go to wishes. <laughs> but I mean, look, I'll, it, it still, it gives you sort of a perspective on humanity too. You know, all the stuff we can see day to day and a lot yeah. of negativity that gets, you know, shown across, across the news and across the internet and everything like that. But at the end of the day, it's why I enjoy doing this because it's, it's people in real life taking taking time out of their lives. Like you said, most people in the world don't have money to give, you know? Right. Most people, but everybody has time. And that's the thing. That's the big equalizer. We can all give a little bit of that and just giving a little. You can give billions of dollars, right? But that time that you gave up, I mean, that's worth more than you know, millions of dollars that, that can, that has been given away. Right. Look what that, that time has that you've dedicated, that you dedicated to Chris that has created much more than money ever could. Right. I mean, well, that's, yeah, that's I, what's so I, interesting. For, thir- for 33 years, what they did was um, they kept me on what they call the wish ambassador. And when mm-hmm. I say, Hey, this is make a wish America. Sure. And make a wish America based in Phoenix oversees all the other chapters, make sure we're following all the same guidelines right. and everything. And they would send me all over the United States, in fact, as far away as Guam, Saipan, and Tinian on uh, meet and greets, on keynote speakers, mm-hmm. and that. And I would have to take time off from work to do that. I would have to take vacation time. My wife also uh, was well, one of the founders, not an official founder, but one of the founding Sure. And she would take uh, time off, and we'd go all over these places. Uh, but again, never asking for expenses, right. because I want to give back to that own foundation and and probably raise hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years uh, in donations from corporate and so on. So that was my way, our way of giving back. Just what you said, we had the time to do it. Right. After Chris and then and then Bopsy, did everything get a little hectic after that because of, you know, Disney World and a little bit of press? Then was it so many parents reaching out, right? So many people. How was that initially trying to structure things where everybody could keep their sanity and actually, you know, keep granting wishes, you know, at, at a at a tolerable level where where things could get done? Yeah, and it, um, we had a stigma at first. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, it's still somewhat, all these years later, that parents were afraid to reach out to us because, as I said, our mission was to grant wishes to children with terminal illness. Mm-hmm. And they had that stigma. If we reach out to the foundation, that means we're giving up. That means our child's going to uh, die. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Yeah. So there there wasn't that much outreach. and uh, We put liaisons in the hospital. We developed brochures. And like mm-hmm. I said, the the board of Make-A-Wish America came up with the list changes to children of life-threatening illnesses. Okay. Yeah. But the most interesting thing is we were into about 10 years of it, and I was involved in a study with uh, several uh, doctors, and we, I started calling it the power of a wish. And we have what we call a rush wish, where a doctor will come up to us and the family and say, if we're going to do this wish, 
it's going to have to be done in the next month or two months because mm-hmm. your child is not going to survive. Right. right. So we would put everybody else that, that's gone on the, on the back burner to get this wish, whatever it might be. Let's just say Disney, for example, right. to get that wish going. The child would go on the wish, come back, and go into total remission. Wow. And, and the, the doctors, uh, they just couldn't explain it. That's why I started calling it the power of a wish. Right. And, and, and my thought, because I worked homicide for years and everything else, but watching these children and injured in car wrecks, you're right. not going to survive. And the will of the mind. I go on it's this wish, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of being sick. I'm tired of this. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to get better. The heck with this. And without even the medications there anymore, they're in remission. And it goes on and on. We hear this all the time. Yeah, it's that's a that's a really, really great, great little story because the I mean, I think we've all kind of experienced a little bit of that where where we go travel, right? I everybody I've talked to, pretty much ninety five percent of people I've ever talked to or interviewed, travel has inspired them in some way, right? And yeah. it doesn't always have to be to Bora Bora, right? Or some crazy place. It can be, you know, for this kid, that is that is a long lost land to him, right? That is going somewhere that he never thought he would have been before. And that just, right? I mean, it creates this yeah. in your brain. It starts to it starts to trigger all these kind of different things. And it, I truly believe it. Absolutely. I mean, we don't, we barely know anything about the brain really yet. So that's oh, yeah. proof alone that there there's something immensely powerful about getting out of your comfort zone and and traveling and and getting your brain working in a different way. Yeah, and it's not just travels. I mean, these kids they they meet a movie star, they meet a sports right. star, they get to they get to go to uh-huh. a, a football game, they get to uh, meet the president. I mean, there's so many different sure. things. Uh, one boy's was so simple. I want a basketball. <laughs> well that hey I, I i i understand that that was my first love <laughs> my first love was basketball so I, I i i get i get where he's coming from i wanted to uh i want to talk a little bit about how the movie got made how does something like that yeah, occur it, it, several years ago um i was at a speaking event and a uh, young lady heard me speak and she came and said uh and this is for uh, Make-A-Wish. And she said, I, I need you to meet a man named Greg Reed, R-E-I-D. And um, he lives in San Diego. And I think he would just like to talk to you about what you've created over the years. And I said, well, I just blew it off. The next day I get a phone call from this guy. I'm Greg Reed. I'm flying <laughs> you to San Diego. And I said, no, you're not. Because I have no idea who this man is, I'm so a homicide detective. Is it <laughs> yeah. somebody? I can't take more. I can't take more days off. <laughs> yeah, well, and is it somebody I put in prison wanting to get even or what? You know, right? So, so I've got a few days off. He flies me over. We hit it off immediately. I mean, he just starts talking. He had a friend there one day, Theo Davies, D I V E S, who was a movie director, mm-hmm. and he heard me speak. He saw the reaction of the crowd. He came up to me with Greg and he said, I've never seen a crowd so motivated with your story, with the emotion, and we want to make a, a motion picture about your life story. And I said, no, you don't. And he said, yes, we do. <laughs> and I, I thought they were talking about a documentary. And he said, no, oh, we okay. want to do gotcha. 
Yeah. And he said, no, we're going to do a feature motion picture. And we started talking about it. And it took me about two or three months to talk with my wife. Okay, let's do this because we're going to, it's going to take a lot of time. And plus I was approaching retirement. I was, I finally said 42 years is enough. I'm right. You know, what am I, right. what am I going to do when I retire? Now here's a whole new uh, road I can go on. So it was six years ago. One of the things I've been involved in production before, and I, uh, in my contract, I had script approval because Hollywood, when you go to movies, that's a big deal. No, it's a, it's a huge deal. Yeah. It's a huge yeah, deal. Yeah. Well, when you that. see based on a true story, it's not a true story. <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood embellishes the heck out of it. But we were, I worked with Theo for two and a half years on a screenplay. He had some things on there, just a little bit too much embellishment. But sure. two and a half years later, I just said, Theo, you have knocked this out. I'm, I am so happy with this. I'm reading the screenplay, and I'm even getting tears just reading the screenplay. That's a good and one. And laughing when I'm supposed to be laughing. They also brought me on as location scout because I really wanted it filmed in Arizona. Now, Arizona yeah, I saw, I, I saw this in one of the yeah. things I watched today. You made, you really wanted to make effort to have it back in where you grew up, right? Because it's it's sort of still impoverished and really having some tough time. It would bring some economic impact to that local area. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that was right. giving back to the community. Even though it's so many years later, the uh, parents uh, of businesses, my friends now, let's say, still own those businesses. So we're bringing that economy, you know, they'll bring a couple million bucks in the economy. Yeah, just, no, it's, just, it's, just a, it's a very big yeah. deal. It's a very big deal. So, so they finally agreed on that. And I'd like to say location scout. And then they brought me on also as a technical advisor and consulting producer. We started filming in, um, in the Prescott area, Prescott, Arizona area in uh, 2017, September 2017. We were a six-week shoot. But we were also three weeks pre-production in building sets and that. And one of the big things, too, where they save so much money is I go to people that I know now, like the Board of Supervisors of the county, and say, you know, there's an old warehouse over there you guys aren't using. What I'd like you to do is put in electricity back in, plumbing, air conditioning, get the toilets working. Mm -hmm. We're not going to pay you, but we're going to build sets inside there. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I go to local businesses, a funeral home, a, a bar, things that we're going to film. Hey, guys, and these are all personal friends, like the uh, Palace Bar, uh, historic. He charges $10,000 a night after yeah. hours to shoot commercials. Right. In Dave, I need to do this for a couple nights. Okay, well, we're not going to pay you. Okay, <laughs> this is a favor. So they saved a lot, a lot of money on location. But... Uh, Filming, I mean, it was just such a blast. The, the Again, the screenplay, the actors they chose, um, the crew that they brought in. When they say 16-hour days on a movie set, they're not exaggerating. Yep. Long, it's, it's... hard days. You only get one day off, but, I mean, everybody. And Theo Davies also being the director, everybody just responded to him immediately. Mm-hmm. He, was, he wasn't the control freak. Uh, he would listen to suggestions. He would explain why. And as a consulting producer, I mean, we just talked time and time, Frank, how should we set this up? How should we set that? But the thing I really respected, Grant, was the actors would come to me mm-hmm. and say, how do you think I should handle this? How do you think I should play this? What what should be my emotions? 
and I would make suggestions, but then we would always go to the director and say, what do you think? And he'd say, wow, that's a great idea. Or he'd say, well, let's not do that because. So that was mm. so much fun working with everybody. Did you did you have anything that was tough for you to kind of relive at all? Because, I mean, oh, yeah. you know, that's a, you know, for, for anybody to go back and sort of relive their life, especially the, some of the most traumatic parts, right? Like that's. There were, there were several scenes where what we call the video village is where you've got the monitors watching everything that's being filmed. Mm-hmm. And you've got the makeup girls, the continuity girls, all of, everybody that's in there in this little tent type thing watching all this. And there'd be several times where I got tears in my eyes and I'm wiping my eyes and they're looking at me and I said, must be the dust in the air, the pollen or something. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, just to relive those things. But there's also the humorous thing, too. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was one of the things that kind of really struck out to me when I was watching the the trailer was it's really beautifully shot. You know, like yeah, yeah. It, like I, how how it's portrayed visually was really 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 interesting. Like it was it was something I didn't expect. You know, I guess I, when I when I played it, you know, you don't. I didn't expect it to be sort of that that sort of visually kind of appealing and and very you know very art like you know i mean it's it's definitely a, a a dramatic sort of a feel when you're when you're watching it it's uh it captivates you you know and, which, and again and again that's all up to the director i mean he had that vision yeah those sunsets those uh, art vista shots and one of the good things too is we had acquired state-of-the-art uh, equipment both in sound and projection our uh, um cameras uh, new stuff that, that we got loaned to us and I'm just state of the art. Yeah, you can tell. You can absolutely tell. Uh, uh, I will give you some some good news is that Little Bubble Gum is still available on Amazon, the book. Okay, good. So. good. Yeah. <laughs> one, one of the things, I'm sorry to interrupt, one of the, the highlights, I guess, during the movie uh, uh, filming is uh, exercise uh, tech advisor and consultant producer and usually one of the first group on the set every morning. And I would work with predominantly the uh, script supervisor. And we would do the first thing, we'd look at the script for the day. We'd look at the setting. Is there anything in the in the script we need to change? Just going over everything, the continuity from the day before. And a very lovely young girl named Kennedy Del Toro. And what she knew who I was. Name. She knew what was about the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And the third day, we're getting along fine. We first met the third day, we come up on set. Kennedy rushes up to me, gives me a hug, and starts crying. And I mean really crying, not just, you know, little tears. Right, Kennedy right, went, okay. wrong. What, what what happened? What did I do? She said, I'm a wish child. What? Now, yeah. Everybody in the village just said, the director just walked in. We got about 30 people crying their eyes out. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Guys, we got to get it together. We got 15 hours left. <laughs> and she was in uh, in 2010. She's 15 years old, living in New Mexico. And she was diagnosed with a pulmonary embolism, uh, life-threatening. And uh, she wanted to go to modeling and acting school, but she was too ill to do it. Wow. And when she got a little bit older, she went into remission and make wish New Mexico said, you know, we still, we still got your wish on file. Do you want to do that? And she said, yes. And um, she ended up first in New York going to uh, school. And uh, then a manager from New York said, 
I'd like you to come to Los Angeles and intern uh, as an acting school. They ended up on a Disney, uh, being in a Disney production, a pilot, and she was just in background scenes. We got very interested in the production end of it, and they offered her internship as, as a production assistant. She ended up uh, studying the script supervisor and was offered a job. And uh, now, all these years later, she's all over the world. But just did you, this, you, you did talk you about know? coming full circle. Yeah. Did Did somebody tell you at all? Like, or would you? You no, didn't have a hand no. in hiring. Like, it would just happen. No, no, not at all. Not at oh. all. Nobody, nobody knew the director. Nobody. The, the oh wow. People, yeah, nobody knew she was a wish child. Oh, so that, like, that was a special moment. I mean. And our, one of our executive producers, Mark Gold, looked around at everybody and said, you know, you can't make this shit up. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I'd like to ask is, um, it, it, it's a it's a tough one because it, it, it might be a little bit of a long question here, is is when you live such a, a productive life um, and something that's, you affect so many people, right? And you've you come from, you know, a place maybe where you weren't expected to do much, right? You you you, you know, you we had you had no idea what you were gonna do in your life and all these different people, you know, played a role into you building something that has affected, you know, probably millions of people around the world, you know, and it's I, I wanna know just what type of advice would you give to people, whether it's young, whether it's old, that their time is so valuable to, to other people and what time can do for not only the person that you give it to, right? But for you, right? Your life is changed by you giving, <laughs> which is 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 a, is a very powerful thing. So just maybe just some advice on, on what people can do to just give a little bit more time in their life. Um, and and how that can change things. And, and again, like I mentioned, I mean, it's because of my childhood, so many people helping me out, especially when my mother abandoned me. When I started seventh grade, you're on your own, and people taking me in and helping me and building ethic and quality and character. But the biggest thing I, I like to say is so simple, is be kind to people. Uh, when mm-hmm. somebody needs help, help them as best you can. It, it doesn't have to be, you know, money. It, uh, Right. Uh, just be a hero in somebody's lives and your community. Anything you can do to help out. My wife, even she sits on the board uh, for United Animal Friends. Um, mm-hmm. She's given the time on there, uh, rescuing animals, or cleaning up the litter on a highway. And uh, we do that. Uh, but, but just again, helping people out. It's the age-old thing, right? I mean that that will yeah. never change. <laughs> no matter well, if we're all living things. on, no matter if we're living on Mars in fifty years, right? That will never. Yeah. That 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 one thing will will just never change. <laughs> when we were uh, in negotiations um, with the studio, and Greg Reed, who is the producer of this movie, um, we were in Newport Beach area, going to meet with some executives, and we were a little early. It's very cold. It's November. It's chilly over there that morning. Fog that rolls in off the ocean, yeah. and we just stopped at a, a local bagel shop. Let's get a cup of coffee and have a bagel before because we're about an hour early for the meeting. And as we walked in, we noticed this, we'll just call him the homeless lady with mm-hmm. her shopping cart, and she's wrapped up in stuff, and she's just sitting out there. And we started walking in, and Greg said, excuse me. And he went over there and started talking. And what he did was he said, hi, I'm Greg Reed. What's your name? I, I can't remember her name. He said, listen, we're having breakfast. Why don't you come and join us? 
and I, I could look at this expression on this lady, and she accepted. We go in, and she's huddled in a corner, kind of like, you know, I shouldn't be in there. And what do you want? Gets for her. And then he said, Frank, excuse me, let me talk to her a while. And as I listened to this conversation, the final thing was she said, nobody's ever asked me what happened. Nobody's ever asked me why I'm this way. And you could see that pride kind of coming back. Right. And then when he left, and this is what I could do. But the biggest thing is she, we're helping somebody out a little bit. But he just shook her hand and said, I'm so happy to meet you. We'll just call her Mary. Right. And I could see there was a $100 bill in his hand that he gave her. Now, just think what that means to her right then. Right. And that's something I hope I can do someday. I mean, I'll buy somebody a cup of coffee or I'll see somebody and I'll pay the restaurant bill when I can. But just to something like that. Ask people. Talk to people. Find out their story. Find out what's going on. There's a reason they're out there. Yeah, one of the other ways I'm giving back with other nonprofits and giving back, yeah. there's a, a foundation, a nonprofit foundation called USDETS, and it's not part of the Veterans Administration. And they have chapters all over the United States. One of the top-rated nonprofits in, in the nation, 86 cents of every dollar goes into the mission, which is almost unheard of in the nonprofit wow. world. And we have a chapter here in Prescott. And what we do is we find our homeless veterans. We have several up here. We get them into temporary housing. We get them into counseling. Why Why are you out there? Why don't you want to come in? We get them into job training, job placement, permanent housing. And I'm one of the advisory board members up here. Just everything we can do to help out on that. And then it's how, on how do you spell it? How do you spell it? It's U.S. like United States. Okay. U period, S period. Vets, V-E-T-S. And that's in Arizona? Yeah, we have one in Prescott, Arizona, but they're nationwide. Okay, gotcha. Nationwide, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, <clears throat> man, Mr. Frank, you choked me up a few times today. <laughs> <laughs> and then another one that's fun is um, a young lady, I was speaking in Houston, a young lady came over there, flew all the way to Houston from New York City to beat me, and... Um, she said, I want to start a nonprofit. Well, first of all, who are you? And then she said, oh, I'm sorry. And she said, I'm one of the, give me your name. She said, I'm, I'm one of the permanent cast members for Phantom of the Opera. Huh. She's been with them for the past 16 years. She's one of the singers and dancers. And she said, we, we have these children's hospitals in New York City. We've got this big, giant Ronald McDonald's house there. It's actually a hotel. And um, we, we want to do something for the kids. And I said, well, look at, look at your profession. You sing, you dance, you got the whole Broadway that you know, all the shows. Mm -hmm. uh, start a nonprofit and uh, go into the hospitals, children's hospitals. Ronald uh, sing and dance, entertain the yeah. kids. So we started, it's called Broadway Hearts. Uh, she's the president, just got the 501c3. I'm on a board of it. And this is going to rock. I mean, this is so popular already. All of the major shows, the stars. The yeah, shows, it's beautiful. I love that idea. Wicked, yeah, Wicked. All of those major shows on Broadway are coming in. And we're already getting, how do we do this in Chicago? How do we do this in Los Angeles, San Francisco, all the big theatrical towns? Huh. So I again, love that. It, it's not money, but it's just giving back time. Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, it's a very, it's the most precious thing we have, right? And to And to give that says more to me it always says more to me than money because money is actually really easy to give <laughs> yeah you know i mean it's very simple 
uh, I, the time is actually very hard to give. Um, well, it is. Look at, look at an example. I'm going to use Make-A-Wish. If they didn't have the volunteer staff that they have, literally hundreds of thousands of people yeah. around the world, it wouldn't work. They could it never do work. this without that volunteer staff. And, and most and most volunteer yeah. and most nonprofits that have a sufficient yeah. impact depend yeah. on a big volunteer base for sure. Yeah, it's the only way it really can work. Oh yeah. Yeah. At, you know, at a, at a big scale, you know, well, I appreciate you taking the time so much. I mean, I know I'm sure you're going to be pretty busy these next <laughs> few weeks uh, and months. So uh, hope, hopefully you're uh, drinking some fluids, you know, eating well and, and getting ready to uh, <laughs> and get ready to talk a lot and walk a lot. I appreciate it, Mr. Frank. Thanks so much. You're best. So long.